lovely listeners. Welcome to another episode of the Ghastly Podcast with me, Nick, and Joanna. So this week we are continuing our meta-horror series, which looks at the use of metafiction and meta-commentary in horror films from the last 50 years or so. And this week we'll be looking at The Barbarian Sound Studio by Peter Strickland. So this film came out in 2012, and compared to Censor from last week, it's surprisingly similar. Yeah, I definitely think that there's not only similar themes, obviously, in terms of the business around filmmaking, but also a lot of similar questions raised about, I think, the ethics of horror that um, I'd like to discuss with you later on. No, I completely agree. Excuse me, do you speak? No. In your world, the sound awaits you. In your world, that requires all your magic powers. Oh! Crazy man. <laughs> I didn't quite know I'd be working on this sort of film. What did you expect? What's he doing to her? <laughs> I've never worked on a horror film before. Horror film? This is a Santini film. Don't call my film horror again. This is going to be a fantastic film. Brutal and honest. <laughs> So the film, as you can probably tell from the name, is all about the sound recording and sound editing process of a horror film. And it follows the story of Gilderoy, who is a British sound engineer. And he arrives in Italy, having been personally requested by the director Giancarlo Santini to work on an Italian giallo film. So obviously, I'm assuming everyone here knows what a giallo film is, but just in case anyone doesn't, it's like Suspiria, obviously, which you've already covered, a kind of genre of Italian horror, which focuses a lot on often serial killers, um, younger women, people getting picked off one by one, so on, etc., etc. And this is very much the archetypal Jallo film, I think, that he's working on. But it's a genre that he is unfamiliar with. And so he is usually used to being sound, a sound engineer for nature documentaries. And so when Santini asks him to work on a film called The Equestrian Vortex, he assumes, you know, it's a horse film. But it's not. It's a horror film about a horse riding academy and the witchcraft secret that it hides within. But, you know, Gilroy's a professional, so regardless of the surprise of the film's content, he nevertheless diligently begins his work and he mainly liaises with the producer, Francesco, and his two assistants, Massimo and Massimo. And together, they work to create the perfect horror soundscape for the movie, using vegetables to simulate the sounds of bludgeoned heads and coaxing realistic screams of horror from the voiceover artists Claudia and Sylvia. All the while, Gilderoy maintains a correspondence with his mother in England. But as the work continues, Gilderoy finds himself increasingly uncomfortable with both the subject matter of the film, which Santini, for one, refuses to even acknowledge as horror. He just says that it's, you know, a historically accurate representation of real witch trials and what happened to real women. And Gilderoy is also uncomfortable with the professionalism of his colleagues, both in the way that they treat the voice actresses in terms of kind of shouting at them when they get a take wrong, really pushing them to the limit to try and get the best performances out of them. And also the way in which that they deal with him, because Gilderoy has been trying and failing since he arrived now to get his plane ticket reimbursed. And so when he asks the receptionist, Elena, who is very cold and unfriendly, she tells him that the flight that he supposedly took doesn't exist. And then when Gilderoy calls the airline, 
This, for some reason, is confirmed by them as well. And at this point, the film gradually begins to become increasingly surreal as the boundaries between the equestrian vortex and Gilderoy's life become increasingly blurred. So he kind of dreams of himself in the third person as being in a horror film, stalked by a woman in his sleep. Sometimes in these kind of sequences, his voice, even though his lips move speaking English words, he's dubbed over in Italian. In reality, Sylvia informs him that Santini, the director, molested her. And so she decides to quit her job in a rage, which means obviously that her role has to be recast and re-recorded with a new actress, Elisa. But Francesco is also dissatisfied with Elisa's performance. And so he and Gilderoy, at this point, by the way, Gilderoy has now started speaking completely fluent Italian all the time. But again, it's dubbed, very obviously dubbed over. Francesco and Gilderoy working together with this new actress, Elisa, essentially used sound um, engineering tools to kind of torture a satisfactory performance out of her by really, you know, turning up the volume in her headphones until it becomes unbearable and refusing to stop. Um, and at that point, she too cracks and she too leaves. And the film kind of ends in this kind of horrible murky limbo as Gilderoy contemplates what he's become and how far he's willing to go for his art. It definitely leaves you in a real situation of unresolvedness, doesn't it? Mm. As, a, as according to what happens to Gilderoy after the film, whether the film actually gets made in the end, because actresses are in and out of that film. It's kind of like a conveyor belt of them. Mm. And it seems like the producers never learn because Sylvia leaves because of her mistreatment by Santini. And then Francesca, with the new actress, Elisa, is immediately like, okay, let's torture her. And then also she leaves in a hole. Yeah, it's just a cycle of abuse, really. Mm. Sylvia is mistreated really badly by Santini. He sort of uses her and forces her to do all these terrible things that made mm. her feel sort of cheap and degraded as a professional. And so she takes revenge on him by pulling all the reels of magnetic tape apart. And destroying the tape. Forcing him to, of course, yeah, hire another actress in her place. But I also think... Beyond that, even with the context of, say, the sexual violence and harassment that Sylvia undergoes, even if mm. you were to remove that, the way in which the producers treat the voice actresses and Gilroy himself is also mm. still completely unfair. It's constantly abusive of, like, that was a shit performance, that was a shit scream, do it again, do it again. And just Absolutely. this constant striving for perfection and denigration of kind of the work mm. of these professionals that just really grinds them down. It low-key reminded me of a story that, I don't know whether it's like an apocryphal story or not, but from the set of The Shining when um, Shelley Duvall... Yes, was, I've heard this. Yeah, she was forced to, to do take after take after take of the same scene by Kubrick. and Yeah, like 40 times or something. Yeah, and it basically made her crack. And Kubrick sort of justified doing that because apparently it got a better performance out of her. It sort of unlocked this ability within her. And Shelley Duval has suffered with her mental health. I'm not saying, I say ever since, not in a sense of, and this caused it all, mm. but either I think she is a person who is mentally fragile. And so to abuse that and to deliberately abuse somebody mm. in the hopes of kind of upsetting them so much that their performance in a horror film is somehow more raw and real because they're actually genuinely feeling tortured is extremely unethical and has consequences. There's another film called, have you heard of Black Bear? Came out quite recently, I think last year maybe. I have heard of it, I don't know what the plot is. So it, it's similar in the sense that it involves these questions of does 
literal psychological harm done to an actor or a performer in a film or a piece of art justified by its ability to like render a performance exquisite or excellent. So I think it, that definitely reminds me of Berberian Sound Studio. And obviously, as we've just discussed, unfortunately, the parallels with real life practice of some directors and producers. Santini coming today. It's, it's very busy. <laughs> You've got a glass of water for this diva. What's your Francisco? So what do you think qualifies this film as meta-horror? Well, first of all, you might want to ask what qualifies this film as a horror? Because Ooh. I have read that Peter Strickland himself has kind of said, oh, well, you know, it's not really... It's not a horror. It's more of a psychological workplace drama. I think he's being coy deliberately there. Yeah. Because obviously it is a film which very much and very obviously and openly, even obviously as we say because it's a meta horror, mm. um, uses the language of horror film. So first of all, it pays the homage, obviously, to the giallo genre, but also in the way in which Gilderoy's perception begins to become increasingly surreal. Obviously, again, as we were also talking about in Sense, he kind of starts to see his own life through the codes and the languages of horror films. Mm. So, for example, with the stalking with the knife in the night, the way in which um, he starts to speak Italian, that was also something that I thought was really interesting because mm. a lot of Jallo films, and in particular, what would happen on set is that there would be actors of multiple different nationalities who often mm. didn't speak the same language and so what would actually happen a lot is that um say for example let's use Suspiria as an example again Jessica Harper would record all of her lines in English whilst some of the other actresses would all be speaking Italian mm. and so in the English release of the film she would not be dubbed but they would be and then vice versa for say the Italian release and so actually I'm assuming that is what's happening professionally here Mm. to some level the entire film is being redubbed over because it's such common practice in giallo films because of the way that casting works in this genre for some reason in the 1970s and 80s so some reviewers say oh could it be that he's just gotten really good at speaking italian and like several months has passed and it's like no obviously not that's not toby jones that is not him speaking it's very it's very much meant to be a dub i think that's crazy yeah and so it's very much speaking literally in this case in the language of film is really shoving it in your face it's like okay we're talking filmic codes mm. and symbols of meaning now mm. and so i think to that extent because it uses so many of those horror cues i think peter strickland when he says oh you know it's not really a horror it's more of a you know psychological drama i think he's being coy deliberately i think so because i think it I think it is a horror. Is he doing what uh, Santini does in his own film? Yes, exactly. Because Santini is like, oh, this film is not a horror, film. guys. You know, it's a, it's a realistic exploration and representation of, you know, what really happened in history. And it's like, yeah, sure. Or is that just a way of excusing? I'm not saying that Peter Strickland, because obviously the whole point of the film is about kind of exposing the, these kinds of like abusive practices that go on behind the scenes but i do think that peter Strickland is perhaps kind of lampshading santini's own behavior and his own kind of justification 
I think it's also very ironic that Santini insists that he's doing this to portray history more accurately, you know, sort of a warts and all portrait in cinema. But what could be otherwise quite a, like a feminist modus operandi is rendered like completely um, redundant by the fact that he treats his um, female performers so terribly. No, exactly. And I think as well, this is something that's really interesting to draw parallels with, um, with censor, which we obviously looked at last week. And I think the wider question of the ethics of horror, because part of the questions that censor did pose and did leave unresolved was, okay, so maybe we all agree that a lot of horror film censorship is kind of puritanical nonsense. However, the way in which women are both A, treated on set, and be depicted within the film text itself in a lot of horrors. Again, they're also set in the same period, kind of 70s, 80s. I think Giallo as well is kind of the closest thing Italy has to the kind of video nasty idea in England because so much of it as well is focused on the gore and the violence, which obviously this film is... Some of these films are probably the ones that slipped into the UK on VHS through the, the, the arrival of video, home video. Yeah, so absolutely. perhaps some of these films, it's quite interesting when you see them as companion pieces. A lot of these films probably would have been watched by Enid in that fictional universe. No, definitely. And I think these Jallo films are a really good example because especially the focus on women is such a big part of the genre. I think this is a perfect subset of horror films also to pose this ethical question. But again, like Sensor, I would say that Barbarian Sound Studio does kind of ask and leave. Actually, I think it comes to a probably more conclusive answer, this film, but it does kind of say, okay, and to what extent is the horror film, or at least the Jallo subgenre, kind of a celebration, kind of like a voyeuristic mm. celebration of violence against women? The ideas of power and manipulation and control are sort of threaded throughout the entire film. And I think Gilderoy is a particularly interesting character to look at that through, for example, you immediately get the sense that he's he feels quite downtrodden, quite disenfranchised and a little bit powerless in social situations. Mm. And I think that's mirrored really nicely by the use of Italian. So he's he's literally excluded from conversation. Yeah, exactly. And he's constantly having to ask, what was the meaning of that? What did you say there? So it, in a way, they're sort of quietly ganging up on him. And meanwhile, Santini and the producer, I can't remember what his name is, but... Francesco. Really, Francesco, that's it. They're being they're just being relentlessly nitpicky about Gilderoy's behaviour, you know. Sometimes he's being too rude. And then that whole conversation with Sylvia where she encourages him to be more rude and more aggressive. It's like he feels like he can barely even assert himself for what he's owed, because he is owed the price of the plane ticket back. But then there's but the that really bizarre they create. You know, that little moment where they tell him that the plane didn't exist that he took. Yeah, and, and he's like, of, what load of nonsense. And then he calls the airline and they're like, yeah, what? That's almost reminiscent of Stockholm Syndrome, isn't it? In yeah. the sense that they're trying to, they're trying to make, sort of psychologically break him down. Or whether he's projecting that onto them, we're never really that sure. I never stopped to ask Santini or Francesco why they hired you. It doesn't make you curious. See 
Be careful with that girl. There was a really lovely moment where there's the first power cut. Yes, and they're all making the sounds together. And they're like, oh, show us how you do it. Visually, it's wonderful. It's It sort of re resembles this sort of Dutch master's painting with the, with the candlelight. But the focus is entirely on Gilderoy for probably the only point in the entire film where everyone stops and listens to him. And it's also about pure artistry as well. Mm. Like he's not being influenced by, say, for example, the commercial considerations of like Santini and Francesco or whatever kind of weird torture Santini and Francesco want to like inflict on the actors. It's all just about show us how you make this sound just for yourself. And then the bit of the UFO on the rock. That's so cool. But as soon as the light comes back on, that little oasis of control that Gilderoy gets for a moment where he's where he's the centre of attention, it's immediately taken away from him. But I thought it was interesting as well that the film seems to constantly comment on the irony of these directors insisting that Gilderoy's money grubbing and pushes them to pay him is unacceptable because he should be doing this film out of love for his craft. Whereas uh, you could easily argue that Jallo films and horror films that Santini exists, well, he insists that these aren't those, but these films were designed to be highly sort of marketable, sensationalist pieces that could make quite a lot of money. No, exactly. And it's the hypocrisy of it as well, because ultimately at the end of the day, the only thing that Gilderoy is asking for is reimbursement for his work, essentially. Whereas in kind of meeting these commercial sensationalist demand Santini and Francesco are literally demanding far more than what is reasonable out of the actresses out of Gilderoy for example and taking some kind of weird pleasure in managing to extract this from them whilst still denying them at the same time what they're owed. What did you think of Gilderoy in general did you think he was a sympathetic character did you like him as a protagonist I did like him as a protagonist I thought he was quite sweet obviously it's interesting as well because I've got you know I don't know if I've mentioned this before guys actually I might not have mentioned it on this podcast no I must have done in a Jello episode you know I speak Italian and I used to live in Italy but I'm also British and so like I get what it's like to be a British person suddenly going to Italy and kind of the cultural differences etc and I thought, you know, I thought Gilderoy was also quite a sweet person in general. It's nice that he keeps up that correspondence with his mum. That was cute. But it turns quite Until obviously, creepy, yeah. Yeah, it turns dark. And I thought, you know, I thought in general, he was a person who had a good understanding of his craft. But also at the same time, he had a love for the art, but at the same time also recognised his own rights and his own right to demand kind of compensation for his work. And I think even even at the end, even it's like, oh my God, what have I become moment with the torture, he's still clearly got much more ethical questions in himself than Francesco or Santini. He's sort of worn down by them as the film goes mm. on. He's troubled by it. He he's troubled. not just like, oh well, ha ha ha, yeah, let's turn up the volume in the headphones. He looks sad as he's doing it. <laughs> and, you know, on the other hand, you could also say, oh, so he's fine arguing with Francesco about his plane ticket, but he's not fine arguing with them about the way in which they treat the actresses. You could say that, to be fair. Was he an accomplice to Sylvia wrecking all of the magnetic tape? Yeah, technically. Because I always wondered, like, how did she... Because she records that message, doesn't she, um, on the reel-to-reel. 
and they play it whilst they're wading through all of this destroyed magnetic tape. And it always seems a bit like he gave her a big hand in, in being able to get them back. Of course, it was an invisible act from their perspective, but I suppose in a sense he did go out of his way to help her in that in that case. And even so, just from the conversations that they'd had in private, I imagine he st- I've, I would still count him as kind of an accomplice to what she did. He's got something of the Norman Bates about him, hasn't he? That's a bit hard. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I know what you mean. I feel like it's it, it kind of it's oversimplifying, but I think with the fact that the correspondence with his mother's given such weight in the film, and we're never really told anything much about him really in terms of his background. Mm. It's only ever that mommy's he's boy. Mummy's boy. English nature. Loves the sound engineer. Doesn't know what a jello is. Exactly. So he's quite sheltered and sort of suppressed in that sense. And in a way that matches up to Enid. And sound engineering and sound design within the film operates as a sort of symbol of him curating his own kind of power in the film, in the way that he's able to manipulate voices and in a way sort of steal voices and sounds and make them his own honestly i thought watching the sound engine i was like oh my god maybe i should become a sound engineer because this looks so fun (laughs) i was fascinated by it all i really enjoyed seeing that side of the creative process and it's the part that you just don't really ever see but i suppose it's 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 slightly more films about sound engineers like less directors making films about what it's like to be a director or writers writing books about how hard it is to be a writer we need more sound engineer films the whole aesthetic was incredible as well it's very analog very 80s yeah and the focus on the on the reel-to-reels and sort of spiral into the magnetic tapes the sliders and everything were given a lot of um emphasis that's it what i also really enjoyed is um you know the bits where every time they start the tape and it would kind of cut to the gloved hand, but it kind of like almost calling back again to the Jallo genre with it kind of like it, it kind of resembles the killer's hand that you would normally imagine in shadows clutching a knife. But here, you know, it's just setting some tape. <laughs> Who's there? I will call the police. It's definitely a process of opening up that he undergoes in the film. And, well, for better or for worse, he ends up accessing parts of himself that I think were suppressed, if that makes any sense. He starts to sort of conjure up the film as a film of his own life, in a way, and that's where the meta commentary starts to take real precedent. The whole process of making sounds is very physical and visceral. With like the smashing the cabbages open, etc. You kind of can't help but be active. I think he's very taken in by all of it in the sense that he's he's used to acting in a very secondary way, in quite a passive way. It's kind of like role play in the sense that he's simulating violence. And as you said, that's done through the vegetables in a in, in a way of sort of betraying suppressed rage. So like a radish becomes like an eyeball connected to an optical nerve. And at the same time, you can see that he's still suppressed because the film uses the, the voice actors as one extreme of, of being able to emote, whereas he's incredibly bottled up and 
withdrawn and suppressed, which I think is an interesting contrast. Towards the end of the film, when he's dubbed over in Italian, it kind of gets to the point where he's so subsumed in this horrific vision Horrific creative vision is what I'm talking about. Um, that like it's like his literal own voice is kind of gone at that point. Mm. It's not even him speaking in his own voice in his own language anymore. I think it's really worth pointing out that Suspiria seems to crop up quite a lot throughout this film. Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, at the beginning when he arrives with the suitcases and he's walking down that white corridor. I feel like that was a real visual homage to the beginning of Suspiria where Susie's walking out the airport. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's so many bits of it where I think it's really about Suspiria in particular that's being parodied here. Mm. I mean, the fact that it's set in like a horse riding academy and there's a kind of like secret witchcraft hidden beneath, like that is the plot of Suspiria but with a dance academy rather than horses. Also the opening sequence was very Suspiria. This is the thing, people talk about Jallos as a genre. And Suspiria is obviously the main example, but not all Jallos have these supernatural elements. Like there are a lot of Jallos which are just like Blood and Black Lace, for example, which is just pure, straightforward. And there's a serial killer killing all these beautiful ladies. Oh no. It's not true necessarily that a Jallo necessarily needs to have a supernatural element to it. And so I think Suspiria is kind of the archetypal, like devilish, satanic, witchcraft, serial killer plotline in Jello. And obviously there's the Academy and then there's that amazing, because the only actual bit of the film that we see is obviously, as in I say the film, I mean the equestrian vortex, is the opening sequence to credits. And I thought that was amazing. And it was so obviously like an homage to like Dario Argento, etc. And like when he's talking about, I can't remember what they're called now, when he's like, yes, and then the band and the soundtrack, the music will be provided by this band called blah, blah, blah. But I was like, oh, I'm assuming is that meant to be like a riff off of like Goblin doing the soundtrack for Suspiria, etc. So yeah, I absolutely think not only is it an homage to Jallo, but Suspiria is the main inspiration. It's interesting then that both these films, Sensor and Barbarian Sound Studio, that we've singled out as being meta-horror, are both very much homage pieces to bygone eras of horror films. I wonder what the relationship is between a film playing out in a metatextual way, but then at the same time functioning as a nostalgic ode to an era of cinema that's now gone. I think it is a combination of things. I think that kind of 70s and 80s era of horror, on the one hand, is really easy to be nostalgic for purely because of the way in which it was shot a lot of the time. Like obviously, Suspiria, it's like gorgeous Technicolor. You know, they just don't make them like that anymore. Well, they do. But you know what I mean? It's just not the same, you know? And there's a lot more of like a kind of campy aspect to 70s and 80s horror, which is really enjoyable. Mm. And it does feel, I suppose, this is not me trying to like denigrate. I know we've literally just done like three episodes in a row about very recent 2010s, 2020s in the case of Sensor, horror films that are great and which I enjoyed every single one of. But you could say in terms of mass market horror, perhaps there's more of an idea of the 70s and 80s being kind of like a bygone age of like increased artistic value and less capitalist focus, which is not necessarily true. And obviously you could come back at that with, okay, and then capitalism means that you get these very sensationalist depictions of like violence against women in 70s and 80s that we've kind of moved on from. And I think that's also another reason why these films 
simultaneously pay homage to the films of this genre while also looking at them critically in the sense that like that is why you would choose this era because it's a really interesting crossroads where feminism is kind of enough of a thing for there to have been pushback to these films at the time but we're still kind of even from a modern perspective we still kind of like look on them with a bit of a oh but you know they were good films they were fun and they looked really good and so there's kind of also that tension between our modern perspective of okay yes maybe there are kind of some problematic elements to these plot lines but also kind of we still enjoy them a lot There's a lot to say about how these films reflect a time of more independent filmmaking. Censor is censor because the fact that these video nasties all emerged on VHS in such an unregulated fashion and we're coming from all parts of the world. And it gives you a sense of the film industry being much more of a sort of global spread and more of an indie spread than it is now. And I think you can say that about Barbarian Sound Studios as well, in the sense that it focuses on the Italian film industry, which has had a great deal of success historically, but now it's struggling in comparison to the Hollywood behemoth, Chinese film industry. Britain, it's even like, even over like the past 10 years, like with a film like Barbarian Sound Studio, for example, because obviously it's a British film, even if it's about the Italian industry, I'm already like, wow, it's impressive that that managed to get made. Would it even still get made just 10 years later? Because it's definitely not a commercial kind of mm. concept at all to pitch. Absolutely not. And I think a lot of people would have turned it down. But have you seen any of Peter Strickland's other films? I actually haven't. Have you? Uh, I've only seen one and it was it's called In Fabric. And... When you said that a lot of filmmakers nowadays are leaning towards nostalgia for these periods of of horror, that reminded me of In Fabric because it has a very bizarre atmosphere. It's very tongue-in-cheek and quite strange to watch at times because you weren't sure whether it was trying to be deliberately funny or whether it was unintentionally so, whether it was just a mix of the two, really. I think, to be fair, if it's an homage to Jallo, I guess... Can't tell whether it's intentionally funny or not. That means it's done its job in some ways. Yeah, and, and in a sense that had, well, I wouldn't, I don't know whether you call it meta-commentary, but it was definitely referencing aspects of Jallo and sort of low-budget horror filmmaking from the 20th century that created sort of unintentionally funny moments, like schlocky moments that were intended to be serious, but became read by the audience as humorous or whatever but it was deliberately trying to do it, which I thought was an interesting reversal. So we've talked about power in the film, but I think one of the most interesting dynamics sort of surfaces in a, in a particular scene between Santini and Gilderoy, where you get quite a homoerotic subtext appear. And it's when Santini is talking about how British people don't open up, they play their cards very close to their chest. And that comes into conflict with, you know, the, 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 the idea of a, an Italian sensibility regarding emotion and expression. And the way he tries to get Gilderoy to open up is by feeding him a grape with his own hand. And then Gilderoy tries to take the grape, but 
Santini refuses to let him take the grape and he puts it in Gilderoy's mouth and it's just very uncomfortable and the eye the the kind of the eye contact goes on for quite a long time. But you get this real sense that there is something very deliberately homoerotic about it because he even says, Oh, where I come from, we swallow the seeds. <laughs> so he's literally swallowing Santini's seed. Okay. And cut. No, I'm just kidding. No, I know what you mean. And I guess because obviously, as you say, it's, it's also like an uncomfortable scene at the same Absolutely. time. Like, kind of like, what? And so, and obviously the whole thing has started with Santine kind of criticising Gilderoy and kind of like the British sensibility in general for being like too closed off and too unreceptive. Mm. And so maybe you could kind of see the sexuality of the scene as kind of like a, not commentary is the wrong word, but like because obviously as we know about Santini, we know that he's assaulted, say for example, Sylvia, and that he likes to kind of torture these actresses as a way of getting better performances out of them. And so perhaps you could see it's kind of like almost like an angry assertion of like, you know, these, you know, these actresses, they let me, they let me do these things to them. And so perhaps you could say, much in the same way in that both the actresses and Gilroy are kind of abused by the rest of the production staff, maybe you could interpret that scene as kind of like, it's all coming from the same place. Santini's sexual abuse of Sylvia, for example, and this kind of like weird thing he does with Gilderoy. It could all be coming from the same kind of violent place of like, why won't you do what I want you to? Why aren't you receptive to me and my energies and my desires? And I think at the at the heart of the film is this criticism of this kind of toxic masculine culture that pervades directors and producers. Not only I think back then, but also absolutely nowadays as well. It still it continues because it's so deep rooted. But perhaps the sort of sexual sensual language of that of that particular scene comes out so much because of the cultural divide between Santini and Gilderoy, but then also the dividing character. And the fact that Gilderoy spends most of the film not really being characterised as a sort of sensual individual. You know, he's very buttoned up. He, um, he doesn't give a lot away. And, and yes, he is quite suppressed. So it creates an, an even more uncomfortably sensual dimension to, to this scene. And, and, and it is a scene where Santini is purely trying to get control of Gilderoy because mm. it's all about power at the end of the day yeah and... it is and the way in which like power and sexuality like intertwine mm. and it's this men using whatever means they can to get what they want out of people and I think if we were to take Peter Strickland's own comments about the film into account the fact that he doesn't consider it a horror film in a pure sense and more of a drama a workplace drama I think that makes a lot of sense because at the core of what Barbarian Sound Studio is, is it's, it's an exploration of power and abuse of power, I think, and how one individual is like forced to change and mutate within that environment. The River Mole, along with the box and beech woodlands of Juniper Top, with their flint, clay and chalk soils, are each as unique as the different character associated.
as we see the sensuality come into like Santini's abuse of people in the workplace, it also is a major part of the film that they are making because in the film and the Jallo subgenre in general, it's kind of fair to say that there is definitely a sexual element to a lot of the violence in a lot of Jallo films. And obviously this film is no exception. I mean, there's a whole bit where one of the characters gets like the red hot poker put inside her. And then with the film text, the text of the Equestrian Vortex within Barbarian Sound Studio, even then violence and power and sexuality are all inextricably bound up with each other. And obviously this kind of bleeds over into the workplace. And I think that makes complete sense for a reading of the film, as Peter Strickland says it, as a workplace drama, but read through the languages and codes of the Jallo film. And obviously this is made literally manifest with the way the film structure starts to change towards the end, where it still remains plot-wise workplace drama, but like visually and orally, the cues of Jallo are much more present towards the end. And relating that back to Sensor, Barbarian Sound Studio seems to agree in a way with the connection that the censors were making between video nasties and their, their ability to impact society. Because you do see this microcosm where these people are being are brought together to make this film, this horror film. And the horror film's influence does bleed into the actions of the characters. But at the same time, you are left in quite an ambiguous place as to whether it's a darker side of human nature and of the, the desire for power and control and mastery and this sort of toxic masculine trait that is at the centre of the film or whether it's the horror film's first. And of course, well, I think in my, in my opinion, it's it's more the fact that it's reflecting the darker impulses of, yeah. of humans and the power. It's you know. Santini's own outlook on the world which he already which is kind of like the archetypal toxic masculinity which informs his art and obviously we never actually get to see the equestrian vortex in the film other than that opening sequence so you could say the film's not really the point it's about the toxic masculine cultures that inform the film but also exist outside of it what did you think of the fact that we're never showing the film in its entirety? Or at all, just apart from the credits? I think it makes complete sense if what we're saying now, if we conclude, like, yeah, it wasn't... The film The film did not make everyone go horrible, you know? It was in them all along. And everything takes on a... In this in this sort of workplace environment, <laughs> that sounds so brochure-y, <laughs> um, Everything takes on a different, more sinister meaning. You know, the most banal of objects, for example, vegetables become corpses mm. and and viscera. And everything just seems to get rewired to become more disturbing than it really is because it's it exists within this imbalance of power and this abuse of power. And Santini, just by mere advantage of being a male and being the one in control, he's able to make the worldviews that he holds material for everyone around him just by that sheer power dynamic and the exploitation of that power dynamic. I think that was a really good point. So I think one more thing that we want to just cover just before we wrap up is do we think that the use of metacometry inherently makes a film better or smarter? Well, I think metacometry and metatextual devices have become super popular recently. Like look at Rick and Morty, for example. And then there was that whole meme about 
oh, you know, you're, you're not intelligent enough. You don't understand Rick and Morty. It's got so many layers. Like, look at all these layers. Nick, I hate to break it to you, but that meme, it doesn't feel like it, I know, was five years ago. So that's just testament to the fact that it's popular nowadays. <laughs> I think that sometimes use of meta-commentary can be quite lazy because... It foregoes traditional structures and intents of, of writing that have sort of underpinned the craft for like, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years, if not thousands of years, to make a plot twist work or to quite cheaply divert the audience's gaze from the things that aren't working. Mm. I think it, when it's overused and its use isn't really justified, it can just end up cheapening the, the film or the book or whatever. It also, the problem with meta-context is that it carries this dimension of professed intelligence. So when something behaves in a, in a meta-textual way or if it invokes meta-commentary of some kind, it automatically makes it more clever in terms of what it's saying. Would you necessarily levy that charge at either Barbarian Sound Studio or Censor? I think the ways that these two films in particular use meta, I think it's much more bound up in the love that these two directors have for a particular bygone era of filmmaking that they want to use as a, as a touch point for, for character studies and to look at power dynamics and issues of morality with regards to horror, which is uh, an important discussion to have because it still rages on nowadays as to like, you know, what is there a moral responsibility that makers of horror have regarding the public and exposing the public to things that are created to be horrific and to be disturbing. We can't help but be voyeurs when we watch films and especially horror filmmaking, which is um, it's hard to get away from that aspect of voyeurism you're watching some terrible, obscene thing happening, it does reflect back on you. And sometimes there's a space opened up in the film that you're watching to remind yourself that you are watching a film. You're still partaking and still participating in that process. So I think in that sense, it's not excessive here. And I think it works really well with these two films. No, absolutely, I agree. And I think what you've seen about the kind of voyeuristic aspect of horror as well, is that in the case of these two films, they're not just horror films that are going like, oh, by the way, hey, I'm a horror film. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? You know, nice I've acknowledged you. it, which means, which means that like I'm cleverer than all the other horror films. Mm. They're films which are not only about horror, they're also about specifically the process of viewing horror. They're about being a viewer of horror. And so to that extent, it's not just about trying to outsmart the genre. It's more of an homage to having watched it. A critical homage, obviously. I mean, that's why they're good films, the fact that they're nuanced. In this case, I agree with you about the way meta-commentary can sometimes be used to really kind of point out that it's like not fallen into the same conventions and traps as others of its genre. But in this case, that's not what the meta-commentary is about in either of the films that we've looked at so far. It actually comes from a place of love for the genre and kind of an acknowledgement that I'm a viewer just like mm. you. I'm a viewer of horror. And that's why they're so interesting. Yeah. Just to mention something that kind of, I think, leads us on very nicely to the next episode we're going to do. I think there's been a lot of criticism recently of that kind of style, not just in horror, but in kind of any genre fiction, whether it's film or TV or even books now as well, of this kind of pointing out all the tropes in something that happened and being like, ha, 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 what are we like? Or like cheapening 
emotional moments and like using meta commentary and metatextual devices to just keep a layer of irony over everything and to kind of refuse to do anything sincerely. Mm. And I've seen a lot of people associate that particular type of storytelling, shall we say, with one Joss Whedon. And that's very interesting because the <laughs> film we're going to be looking at next week was co-produced and written by one Joss Whedon. Ba-ba-da-da. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we're going to be looking at Cabin in the Woods from 2011 which again is also a very good, well, I don't say good in terms of quality, or maybe I do, who knows? You'll have to tune in next week to find out. But also (laughs) a very prominent example of meta horror, and I think also one of the most commercially successful. Mm. So I'm really looking forward to that. I'm just really excited to see how our discussion evolves as we watch more of these films and we go further and further back in time. Yeah, just in case anyone hadn't already got oh, yeah, it, we're going point. backwards <laughs> in time. That's what we're doing. Just in case you wonder why the hell we're jumping from, you know, 2021 Sensor to 2012 Bavarian Sound Studio. Yes, we are very much going back in time. So in that case, we will see you all next week. Dear listeners, thank you so much for listening. Next week, we'll be looking at 2011's Cabin in the Woods. Thank you again for listening and remember to stay safe. Bye.